Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talked to Dr. Stephanie Lahr, CIO and CMIO at Monument Health in South Dakota, about providing care for remote patients during a pandemic. And now, on to the interview. Hi, this is Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. Uh, today, I'm joined by Dr. Stephanie Lahr, uh, CMIO and CIO of Monument Health. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lahr. Hi, Jay. Great to be here. Um, and I guess let's start off by, um, I'll just have you tell me a little bit about, um, you know, what you do and, uh, at, at Monument Health. Sure. So maybe I'll start with just a little bit about who we are as an organization. Sure. Monument Health is a not-for-profit healthcare system. Uh, we're based in Rapid City, South Dakota. We serve most of Western South Dakota, uh, a little bit of Eastern Wyoming and Northern Nebraska. So we have five hospitals, over 40 clinic locations, um, and participate in most medical specialties other than transplants and complex pediatric care. We have long-term care facilities, home health, and pharmacy services as well. Um, of our five hospitals, three of them are critical access hospitals. And we are pretty um, remote from the standpoint of, you know, it's several hundred miles in any given direction to get to um, any other significant healthcare system. So uh, I, as the CIO and CMIO, am responsible for sort of strategy and implementation and management of um, all of the technology that's used to um, support the provisions of healthcare. So obviously that is um, a wonderful uh, position to be able to be in and I get to contribute a lot these days. Uh, given the high level of integration and rapid evolution of technology as really an enabler of um, transformation, transforming healthcare. Excellent. And obviously, I'm sure it was challenging enough, you know, dealing with, you know, connecting uh, remote patients to care before COVID-19. Um, how did things change, you know, once the pandemic, you know, kind of hit and, you know, people really couldn't travel? Yeah, it's a really interesting question and um, it is a very interesting, I think, um, story about human behavior and how we modify. You know, as you mentioned, we've had uh, challenging geography, challenging weather, things that keep patients kind of at a distance from us for a long time. And really, prior to COVID, um, our telemedicine and remote health footprint even despite those um, long-term, you know, circumstances, was really very, very small. Um, we had most of our patients, you know, were driving to clinics, even if it was a hundred miles at a time, um, and or in snowstorms, or we closed clinics during snowstorms because we knew we wouldn't be able to manage the care. And so it was really um, quite a. a rapid evolution for us when COVID hit. In fact, interestingly, we had just had a big meeting um, and brought in a consultant and had developed our telehealth two-year strategy, um, which, you know, again, was complicated by not only geography, but there were payer concerns, licensing concerns, a lot of complexities that fortunately were taken out of our way when we went to respond to COVID-19. So um, with that sort of at our, um, as our baseline, we decided within a very short period of time, we had to provide telemedicine and we really, you know, stood that up in about three days. Um, 
the way we were able to do that was really to um, figure out what we could do at that moment that was simple and could be rapidly deployed and expanded and we just did it knowing that there would be um, iterations of improvement and enhancement over time both on the um, from the perspective of the technology on our side as well as um, how that experience was for the patient so we went from literally zero um, telehealth visits a week or you know a day um, to over 600 over the course of about a week and a half Wow. Um, and I guess, you know, sort of getting back to just providing care for remote patients, you know, what are the biggest concerns that you have, um, you know, with with folks who are hundreds of miles away? Yeah, it um, it's complex because they um, have it can have obviously a difficult time getting to us. It can be difficult to manage. Um, not only the travel, but the other support that's needed. Sometimes people are too sick in order to be able to come to us, um, or they don't have the other support mechanisms within their home or their family lives to be able to um, to make it to where we are. And so, you know, it's kind of a combination of how do we um, help them be as successful as they can where they are and then how do we help facilitate getting them to us when that is really what is is needed um, and so we're still working through some of that and this has been a great um, opportunity to work in that space and and figure out what do the patients need and want um, and how do we best provide that service and, and uh... Can you walk me through some of the steps that you that you took to you know sort of uh, to use telehealth and you know some of the some of the uh, technologies that you use to uh, to address this? Sure. So early on, as I mentioned, we we rolled out telemedicine visits in just a couple of days. The way we were able to do that was by using sort of a standalone video system that was not integrated with our EHR that allowed us to, again, be able to really just turn it on and go. So within um, a handful of days, we were on um, and offering those telemedicine visits in every specialty across the organization, whether that was orthopedics or primary care. And um, we saw, again, really significant uptake. Patients were very excited about it. However, what we found was that um, over 50% of the visits that we had over the few months where telehealth really, really um, took off and was actually great outnumbered our in-person visits um, was that those a majority of those visits, over 50% of those visits had to be done by telephone instead of video. Mm. So we started to try and understand more about that. Um, some of it might, you know, was occasionally our provider having issues on um, the delivery side. And so the, the situation was turned to a telephone call because of that. But more often than not, um, the patients were either struggling on their end with um, the technology or they didn't have the appropriate technology, meaning a device of some kind, um, or in lots of cases, we're really challenged with bandwidth. Right. And it's very, very difficult to have a high quality video interaction um, if you don't have uh, high quality internet, which many people in our area do not have, um, either because it's too expensive or it's just not available. And that must be, 
I guess something that's sort of looked at, you know, as, as you plan for the future, uh, obviously a lot of that's out of your hands in terms of infrastructure, but, uh, you know, for the general area, but, you know, what are, what are some of the things that you're kind of, you know, looking at as you, as you go forward with telehealth? Yeah, so, you know, it does seem, and, and in many instances, I suppose, is truly out of our hands. However, I feel like I've made some really great connections and inroads, both in leveraging um, relationships with vendors. So I've reached out to our um, potential, you know, 5G partners, the you know, the big service providers, and had really good fruitful conversations with them about the importance of um, being able to bring 5G to rural locations um, because we really need it um, as much, if not more, than some of our more metropolitan areas where obviously the bang for the buck is going to be higher, um, but, but the need here is very great. And so that advocacy and sharing and championing that story um, has been very successful and I'm working closely with a couple of them on what we can do to help patients have affordable access to um, high quality internet because whether we're talking about telemedicine or we're talking about remote monitoring programs for patients at home or we're going to be transmitting data back and forth, we have to have dependable, you know, internet connectivity to be able to facilitate those. So I would say that, um, you know, we're still viewing telemedicine as a real opportunity for the future, remote monitoring, we're doing some now. Um, there are ways to do those in sort of lower tech, lower bandwidth requiring um, fashion to begin with, and then escalating those things and making them more sophisticated over time as the technology becomes um, more available or more ubiquitous um, from an affordability perspective. So it, it's it's more um, probably just impacting the the timeline of how quickly we advance our sophistication. It doesn't have to keep us from doing anything. It's just a piece that we have to um, allow to play into the strategy overall. Right. And how much uh, outreach did you have to do to patients to sort of say, hey, this is what we're doing. Obviously, it's, you know, we don't want you traveling here given what's going on, but, you know, this is what we need to do in terms of technology. Like how much of that did you have to do? So that's been an interesting pendulum swing as well. At the time that we rolled out our telemedicine suite of, um, of appointment availability, uh, patients were already excited to do it. We really didn't have to do much of anything um, you know, to advertise it as, as patients would call in to cancel or extend or change an in-person appointment. We could talk them through um, converting that to a telemedicine appointment. We had lists of patients who had previously been canceling appointments that we were able to reach out to and ask them if they wanted to reschedule. Um, many people did that on their own as well as they heard that telemedicine was available. Again, it's sort of, um, it, it's maybe one of the benefits of being small towns, even if across a big geography, is, is word kind of travels fast. Mm -hmm. So that really wasn't as much of a concern. What we started to see, though, was over the summer, as people became, you know, I believe somewhat restless um, and um, 
just having a difficult time dealing with the level of isolation. You can imagine how isolating it is, you know, even if you live in a big city, you might see your neighbors, you know, in the hallway of your apartment building or whatever. If you live on a, you know, several hundred acre ranch and now you haven't left that place in in months, it's very isolating. So we started to see that um, people wanted to come back to clinic and we were offering them telemedicine and they were turning it down and instead saying, nope, that's okay. I'd really rather come back. So what we did at that point is we've developed some new tools within our EHR system that helps us um, sort of assess a patient's risk factors for developing complications with COVID-19. And if you're in that higher risk category, that allows our schedulers to maybe um, push a little bit more on the opportunity to do a telemedicine visit. We certainly will allow any patient who wants to, that feels it's important for them to come in to do so. We take lots of precautions um, in managing that in-person care and keeping people as safe as possible. And we, we think we can do that successfully. But really, I think it's coming down to now establishing patient choice and preference. And some people's preference is telemedicine and some people's preference is to come in. And we're here to sort of facilitate whatever they feel is in their own best interest and educate them so they can make that decision in the best way possible. And how, uh, how much did COVID hit the area? Did you, did you have a fair amount of cases or was it more of a precautionary thing just to, just to keep people, you know, at home and safe? Yeah, I think that's another interesting part of our story, um, which is, you know, playing itself out even in the media today, we are seeing our highest numbers that we've seen right now. Oh. Um, our, pos- you know, our positivity rate is um, higher than it's been. Our number of tests and number of um, positive tests are are high. Um, our number of hospitalizations are higher as well. We are managing through that. But yeah, I think it's very interesting when when the world was very focused on this because our very large metropolitan areas were being, you know, sort of overcome by COVID-19. We were all in the midst of, of that swirl and that response. But at that point, you know, we had probably few to no cases in lots of areas. Um, And so that has been an interesting challenge as well is, you know, people spent time um, secluded and isolated and doing all the things we asked them to do. And a little bit of that capital has, so to speak, been spent. And now that we're seeing our numbers higher, we are working hard to re-educate the community that um, now is the time to be as safe as possible and um, a- and for us all to work together and make sure we've got all the right tools in place to be able to facilitate um, the needs of the community. One good example of that might be um, the nurse call center that we went live with in March. Again, something that we rolled out very quickly was a brand new service line that we didn't have prior to uh, the pandemic and actually interestingly was staffed by IT nurses for almost six months while we found a way to operationalize it across the organization. And um, we we really had leveled out over the summer around 200 calls a day during um, 
weekdays and of 100 calls a day on the weekends for our entire geography. And late August and early September, we have we saw those numbers double and um, they've remained consistent in that doubling rate and um, or range. And so at 500 calls a day, we just, you know, weren't staffed for that. So we've pivoted and made some incremental innovative improvements. And now we offer opportunities actually just beginning yesterday for patients in our community with mild symptoms who don't need to speak to a nurse for more complex advice, but just need to schedule a test, a way to do that online without having to interact with a person. And that's been hugely successful, even in just the less than, or just about 24 hours that we've had that turned on. So I think it's really about constant evaluation of where are we? What do we need to do next? How can we pivot and how can we continue to um, respond? Have, is it, um, you know, given the, the increasing cases, has the local, uh, the local health authorities, have they kind of gone back to the restrictions that were in place earlier or, or, or things are a little more relaxed than they were? Um, so we, in general, you know, in our area, um, didn't have a lot of really tight restrictions ever. Um, part of one of the benefits of being very rural is there's sort of some built-in yeah. um, social distancing that occurs. <laughs> um, when you, if you live on a half an acre or a hundred acres, or, you know, even if you live in town, you probably have in general, more space, yep, than in our um, more populated areas. So, you know, I, I would say that our job as the health system is to provide as much um, scientifically supported, helpful information to those in our um, local government, both in, you know, the, the city, the county, and at the state level so that they can manage you know, the, the difficult conversations around what are the right um, policies and um, you know, rules to have in place as we manage our communities. So you know, again, that's what we see as our, our role is provide them the data, give them the information so they understand where the situation is. And then they, as the representatives um, for the constituency of our community um, help decide how to best formulate those into um, into community policies and regulations if we need them. Um, and do you consider this the second surge, or do you feel like this is still sort of a continuation of the you know kind of original uh, you know surge of, of COVID nineteen? Yeah. I in my opinion, I would really consider this our first surge. Okay. We had hospitalized patients and things like that, you know, over the summer, and we obviously had cases over the summer. Um, but our um, our positivity rate, test positive rate, you know, going over ten percent, only has happened in the last, um, you know several weeks. So prior to that, you know, even when we had patients over the summer that were in the hospital and or that we were monitoring through patient monitoring programs and things like that, our positivity rate was still in that sort of three to five percent range. So I think this is really for us the first true surge. And and it's an interesting and challenging time to be going through that because flu season is basically just around the corner. Right. Um, so 
what would you recommend to other health systems who, you know, maybe haven't, you know, taken the, you know, these kinds of steps, you know, in terms of supporting their remote patients, what, you know, what would you sort of recommend in terms of strategies or tools to, uh, to implement? I think keeping it simple and making incremental improvements is really um, the foundation of of success. If you try to go from you know having nothing to saying oh we're going to have a um, a broad and expansive digital front door um, that meets all of the um, patient needs and desires, you know, and that's when we're going to turn it on, you'll you'll stall out for months, you know, trying to get to that point. So instead, you know, I think we've taken the approach of what is a problem or a challenge that's in front of us right now? What are some tools that we already have? Who are partners we already work with um, that may have solutions that could be used to improve processes and, and make those incremental changes to address those problems that are immediate and then take a step back and look and see, you know, how that went and then make improvements from there. I think telemedicine is a perfect example. As I mentioned, we went live with a, a non-integrated um, video. We have subsequently added um, integrated video to make it simpler on both the from the side of the patient and the provider. And we're working on some other really cool things that now would allow for automated documentation during that visit so that um, the patient and provider have more time with each other and less time with the technology. If we had set our original goal to do all of those things at once and we weren't going to go live with any of it until it was done, we probably would still be working on that. So I think it's just really important to identify a problem, address it with simple solutions that you already have at your fingertips while thinking broadly about how you could enhance those over time and then start making those iterative improvements. And how, I mean, how big of a, of a, of support was having administrative buy-in? I assume, you know, since you guys were basically getting ready to rule this out anyways, that, you know, uh, your, your health systems administration was really, you know, behind it and, and pushing it. How did you get to that point? Was that something that, you know, you had taken to them previously, or, or was that something sort of as part of a strategic plan? Uh, all of the above. So I think what we have seen is that, um, you know, whether it was uh, telemedicine or um, documentation tool enhancements or um, home monitoring programs, those were all things that were on our roadmap. So everyone was familiar, um, but of course the timeline, um, the tool set, and, um, and in some cases the extent to which we were gonna roll out those tools had to be modified. You know, I consider myself to be very lucky as the CIO and CMIO. I'm an integrated part of our senior leadership team. And so um, as all of this was, you know, coming into play, again, I think the, the foundational education by the, the rest of the administrative team had already occurred. And so um, to pivot and figure out how to make those things happen 
faster or um, in a different way to accommodate rapidly changing needs was something that really just took um, a conversation. And it's uh, maybe another benefit of being sort of a mid-size organization is we all are, are very close and we live in the community that we are um, providing resources to and so it, it really didn't take much to be able to say hey i think we can do this i think we can do it within this short time period um and and they all bought right in our physicians our administrators all said yes this is great um we want to be able to do this we want to be able to provide it for the community we we knew this was the direction we were going so if you can make it happen faster let's do it and that was pretty good timing to really, you know, you, you would put a lot of effort into this before, um, you know, COVID hit. So you, you kind of were ready, you know, even though you had to make some changes to your plan, you were you were ready to go from a, from a mindset standpoint anyways, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really one of the great things um, that sort of comes out of uh, a difficult situation such as the one that we are in is if you have um, strong leadership conversations and are looking toward and planning for the future, then you can take a situation like this and learn how to to pivot and and make the changes that you need to make in order to adjust to things that are difficult to foresee. I won't say we did it perfectly. We certainly didn't, and we have lots of lessons learned um, as well. But um, the foundation, the foundation was there. What are some things that you learned, you know, sort of in rolling this out that you, you know, that you would do differently, uh, you know, going forward? Like, what, what did you sort of say? Oh, we, you know, we need to go in a little bit of a different direction here. So I think um, we are going to have to look closely at uh, our telemedicine footprint and what are the right areas, you know, we sort of gave it to everyone out of the gate, primary care, all specialties and everything. I think there are going to be some areas that make more sense for certain specialties than others. Um, and in order to make it the best experience possible, both for patients as well as the team that's providing care, um, we need to probably hone in on what are the use cases where this makes the most sense so that we don't have um, patients or providers who feel like they're not getting the highest quality experience and therefore sort of are turned off to um, all things telemedicine. I think another piece is at times we've underestimated um, the populations, you know, the rural populations desire to be digital. Um, we have, you know, a large um, population that's in a retiree category. Um, and I think there has been a sense, not really based on any data, that, oh, they, they probably, you know, don't want to be um, leveraging digital tools. They, they don't want to be on, you know, patient portals and, and interacting in, in these digital spaces. And what we have found is they absolutely do. In fact, you know, over, um, the, the majority of our, the highest number demographic wise for our patients that participate in my chart are patients that are 65 to 75. Yeah. And that was a really interesting um, piece of information for us to identify 
in the last couple of months as we've been looking at the tools that we have available through our patient portal and things like that and how to expand them and maybe even go beyond a patient portal is, well, who's using it and who's not? And I again, I think we've maybe underestimated um, what the community wanted and who and kind of what their personality was with respect to this. And so we're going to go about that differently now. Hmm. Um, and how, how did you prepare staff to use um, you know, telehealth and, and all the different technology that you were uh, you know, putting in place to connect with patients? So if I'm perfectly honest, we really didn't. <laughs> in a three-day um, implementation, the strategy was um, this had to be a do-it-yourself tool set. And so we put the technology in place. We created some basic tip sheets. We created some basic online video, you know, recorded um, trainings that were brief so that people could kind of work them into when they had time. And and we said, you know, with with 40 locations across a several hundreds of miles, there was no way we were going to be able to go site to site to provide education, training at the elbow support, kind of the usual things that we do when we roll out something new. And so we created it in such a way that we felt like it could be self-service. Um, it wasn't perfect, but again, by taking incremental steps and not trying to sort of do everything at once and make a whole bunch of massive changes, but make some small ones, that was relatively successful. I think it also helped that everyone was bought in, that it was the right thing to do. They wanted to do it. And so if it meant that there was a little more um, work on, on their own end to have to sort of self-implement and self-support, they were willing to do that for the sort of the greater good of the overall um, benefit of getting it put in and, and being able to do that across a wide geography in a very short period of time. Now, that being said, again, we're coming back now and saying, what are the optimizations? Who needs some additional um, training or additional tools, et cetera, to, to look at that? But it, it's an interesting way to look at um, project management and deploying of tools and has made me sort of rethink when are the times that we need to be ultra um, methodical and um, you know have a, a long runway to something? And when are the times that we maybe have overdone those processes or developed, you know, some degree of analysis paralysis and prolonged and, and are sort of, you know, the cliche of saying of for going good for great and not getting things out there. And so I'm, I'm re-examining tools that we're deploying and trying to figure out what's that right mix of making sure that we can provide the best tool with the right support, but maybe not um, having to make it so formal that we really delay people's access to those tools. And are there any tools that you haven't put in place yet that you'd like to? Um, so we are doing some remote monitoring right now with um, what I would call non-integrated home monitoring devices. I'd like to, we'd like to get to the point where those devices that a patient is using at home, whether that's their pulse oximeter or temperature, you know, thermometer or scales or any of those kinds of things can automatically send information to us rather than that information being inputted either by the patient or by our staff when we talk with them. So that's a piece that we're moving toward. 
And then we we are just beginning um, some really exciting work around uh, documentation uh, optimization where we can allow our providers and patients to basically have a conversation and turn that conversation into the document without asking the provider to have to go back and recreate that through um, either you know traditional dictation or front-end voice recognition tools. Um, it's been something that's been in development, again, for a long time. We've been working on what does this strategy look like over the next year or two. We took a pivot on that and said, well, gosh, we were thinking we were going to have to outfit rooms in order to be able to do this um, because the patients would be there in person. Maybe that's not the case. And so we're actually doing some of the early work on piloting this in telehealth because, again, there's a lot of moving parts in a telehealth visit. It's a new workflow for providers and for patients. So if we can sort of take the documentation side and make it automated and just happen on its own the provider and the patient can focus a lot more on maintaining the intimacy of their relationship which is just a little bit more challenging when you're doing something via telemedicine so um again really excited to kind of see where where that goes and how we modify what was a bigger plan um, to something that we're doing in some small increments now and then evaluating how that expands over time to our whole um population of providers and and kinds of visits that we do. Excellent. Well, Dr. Lara, I want to thank you for uh, coming on the program and, and uh, spending some time with me. Uh, and good luck uh, going forward with your program. Well, thanks, Jay, for the opportunity. Um, we are definitely excited about the future. Um, you know, technology has never been a bigger part of the provision of, of medicine and, and in rural healthcare. Um, we definitely have as much or more opportunity to be unique and creative and innovative. And so um, hoping to continue that work and, um, and share that over time. So thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Take care. That wraps up episode 17 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join me next time. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page on psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.